This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On Wednesday, we went to Westminster for what was meant to be a big day centered on the SNP's motion supporting a ceasefire in Gaza. But it ended with this apology. I've got to say... I regret. Oh, it's ended up. The House of Commons Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, said sorry for the way he managed the Opposition Day debate, which ended up infuriating the Tories and the SNP and arguably letting Labour off the hook. The result, as we discovered, was a yawning gap between the catastrophe happening in Gaza and an appalling farce in Westminster. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. On Wednesday, MPs were going to vote on an Opposition Day motion from the SNP calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The Labour Party put forward an amendment which they hoped would help avoid a similar rebellion to the one that happened back in November. But then the government also announced its own amendment. Hope you're still with me. Traditionally, you'd expect that the government's amendment would be the one MPs would get to vote on. But jaws hit the floor when the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, stood up and said this. This is a highly sensitive subject on which feelings are running high in the House, in the nation and throughout the world. I think it's important on this occasion that the House is able to consider the widest possible range of options. I have therefore decided to select the amendments both in the name of the Prime Minister and in the name of the Leader of the Opposition. So a chaotic day began. But what did it all mean? I spoke to our political reporter, Kieran Stacey, who helped explain it. Where we're at, so we're now speaking on Wednesday afternoon. We're going to have voting beginning in four or five hours. What we're going to have now that Lindsay Hall has made his decision is a vote, first of all, on the Labour amendment. That probably will not go through because the government is likely to whip against it. So they have the numbers to defeat it. If for whatever reason it does go through, let's say Tory MPs rebel or you know stay at home, does go through, that's the only vote tonight. That is the motion. It's carried by the House. Presuming it doesn't go through, we then have a separate vote on the SNP motion, which is supposed to be the main point of the day. And then there will be another vote on the government motion. The one we will be watching in that scenario is, of course, the vote on the SNP motion, because that's where we'll see how many Labour MPs are still willing to rebel 
even having been given the chance to to vote on their own ceasefire amendment. So okay. we're likely to have three votes. And okay. after the second one, we'll have a sense of where the Labour Party is on this. Now, over the last hour or so, it's become clear that something of a stink has been kicked up about Lindsay Hoyle's decision to take a vote on the Labour amendment. Because that wasn't expected. The idea was you'd have the SNP motion and the government amendment, and that would be the two choices, right? And people are saying, really, that Lindsay Hoyle... Uh, in a way that the Speaker shouldn't, has just acted to get the Labour Party out of the lurch, really. Yeah, well, so the first thing to say is the the obscure parliamentary rules governing the whole process (laughs) mean that uh, you are only supposed to have one amendment for an opposition day debate. So uh, for a while we've known that, A, that was the case, and B, that if Labour lodged an amendment, the government was likely to try and do so too, to try and knock Labour out of the water, as it were. It turns out that parliamentary convention going back however long says that usually it is a government amendment that is chosen. So if you're going to, the point about having an opposition day debate is it gives an opposition party a chance to challenge the government on something. And if there's any difference of opinions between the opposition party and the government, now we've ended up in this position where the key difference of opinions between two different opposition parties. So that is kind of, (laughs) the SNP is saying, perhaps not unfairly, look, what on earth is the point of giving us a day if this all becomes about Labour and and about their amendment. But let's remember the entire point of the SNP bringing this motion is to embarrass Labour. So it doesn't feel entirely unfair that we've ended up talking about Labour on a day that was supposed to be about the SNP. But do you think Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, has been got to by the Labour Party? He's been leaned on. He certainly has been leaned on. There's been very heavy lobbying over the last 24 hours. Labour MPs have been uh, telling him that they feel their personal safety is at risk. Unless they get a chance to publicly show that they're in favour of a ceasefire along their lines. That's the point, right? Right. So what happened last November, this all happened in almost exactly the same form last November. But at that point, when Labour wasn't even using the word ceasefire, Keir Starmer whipped his MPs not to vote for the SNP motion. 56 of them rebelled and did so anyway. Those that didn't, particularly in areas either with high Muslim populations or with the kind of progressive voters who feel very strongly about this, say that since then, they have come in for a barrage of abuse in person and online, uh, in the mail, in every medium possible, basically saying, you voted against a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, once somebody's saying that to you, it's very difficult to get into the nuance of abstentions in parliament and whatever. So they said they needed the chance to vote for a motion that had the word ceasefire in it. And that's what they've been telling Starmer. He accepted that. And that is when what they've been telling Lindsay Hoyle as well. If you don't allow us to vote on this amendment, you're putting us in a position where we either rebel or we're putting our our, our safety at risk, is what they've been saying. Okay. Now, at that point, it's worth saying, isn't it, that from the outside, this looks like the most awful, self-serving, arcane kind of politicking in the context of the horror of what's happening in Gaza. There's something a bit unseemly about this viewed from the outside, right? Even the inside. Well, look, I'm on the inside and I I see it that way. I mean, when you take a step back, it's completely absurd. We are having this drama over three motions, all of which use the ceasefire, none of which make any difference whatsoever, A, to what the British government does, or B, to what happens on the ground in Gaza. We are having this completely unseemly debate, first of all, about very technical wording in motions, and then about the standing rules of the House of Commons and what should and shouldn't be allowed and whether the rules should be changed. Meanwhile, you know, 28,000 people are dead. And I think that, you know, most 
people, whatever they feel about Gaza, will look on today in the comments and just think, what on earth are they doing? Now, zoom out from today and all the arcane questions of procedure and protocol and all that. Let's just talk about um, how the Labour Party got in this mess. Because the position that it's arrived at is very, very different from where the leadership was, what, even a matter of weeks ago, right? So how did the Labour Party get in this mess that there's all this panic flying around and this idea that if they don't get their amendment on, then that puts them in a terrible place and so on? This is, you know, we, we tend to think now of the Labour Party as being on this sort of gliding path into government. It doesn't feel like that. Everything's gone, well, not everything, but a lot has gone wrong. It's looked very shambolic. How have they got in the mess? Well, I mean, it depends where you want to start from, but really, the, really all right, well, let's start with the beginning of Keir Starmer. And the point about Starmer's leadership from relatively early on in his leadership has been a rejection of what came before. Yeah. So it's been about putting Corbynism behind the Labour Party, showing people that it's changed. A big part of that, of course, has been rooting out anti-Semitism yeah. and any accusations of anti-Semitism. Yeah. As a result, I think, when the October the 7th attack happened, Keir Starmer was very, very keen not to be seen to be in any way justified the attack or uh, you know, looking like he didn't support Israel's right to self-defense. Yeah. And he ended up on LBC famously saying exactly. that Israel had the right to turn the water and the power off, which exactly. is a, just on a humanitarian level is an awful place to end up. Which is the root of this mess. He probably didn't mean it. In fact, they've now said he didn't mean it, but they spent days trying to unravel that position. And they, they first of all, dug themselves into that uh, position and then decided to try and unravel it. Really, the seeds of this argument lie in that, that since then, Keir Starmer has been trying to unravel a lot of what he said in the past. He felt for a while that he couldn't use the word ceasefire because the government wasn't using it and the Americans weren't using it. And if he did, it looked again like he was bowing to the very strong pro-Palestinian lobby within his own party. And um, so he's had to be kind of dragged uh, onto to this um, territory. It's really only in the last few days. I mean, even this weekend, he wasn't using the word ceasefire. He was calling for a stop to fighting. But more to the point, only a matter of weeks ago, if you were a senior Labour politician, in other words, if you were on the front bench and you'd have loudly called for a ceasefire and used that language, there would certainly have been massive briefing against you and you'd probably have lost your job, right? Yeah, if you were, well, put it this way, if you were a shadow minister who wanted to vote for a ceasefire in November, yeah. you had to resign to do so. There we go. Today you don't. Yeah. Right, we'll speak to you again later. Look forward to it. Outside Parliament, near what I think is called the St. Stephen's entrance, and there is a, a big lobby of Parliament today organised by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. So there's quite a lot of noise, lots of people, loads of Palestinian flags. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what these people think of what's going on in there. Can we, can we talk to you for a minute? Yeah. Okay, that's very kind. Just tell me why you're here. Um, because I object to um, people being slaughtered in their thousands not only being slaughtered but they're refusing to let aid in yeah like food water the essentials of life medicine so there's, a, there's obviously an immense moral clarity Absolutely. to this right do you know what's going on in there today um, they're probably wondering how they can get out of um 
voting with the SNP for a ceasefire. Keir Starmer has instructed all his MPs to abstain from the vote. From the SNP motion. The SNP yeah, motion, yeah. which is just disgusting. Well, he would say he's got his own amendment. There's a Labour amendment now calling for an immediate ceasefire. Um, no, he doesn't mean that at all. He was one of the first MPs to stand up and say that um, Israel was entitled to withdraw food, water and medicine and power from the Palestinian people. Yeah. And then said it, well, he said he made a mistake by saying that. No, he didn't make a mistake. He was quite deliberate and he and said it several times And do you take then. seriously the idea that he's changed his position? No. No, he hasn't changed his position at all. Yes, you're not surprised. Just, I thought you'd probably say that. He's just getting worried about losing the election, basically. And do you think it counts for something what Parliament says? I mean, some people would say, you know, it's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. <laughs> it's not irrelevant because, um, amongst other things, uh, Britain's providing key military support. They're based in Cyprus. All the Americans are flying from there. What this country has to, its position on the Israel-Palestine thing, going back to history 50 years ago, has always been very important. Very simple. Which is why you've come, really. I've come because I think it's outrageous that after 137 days of genocide, the UK government still hasn't called for a sustained ceasefire. And what do you think of what's going on in there? You know, there's a, there are various votes, it looks like. Yeah. There, there'll be at least two. It's very hard to follow what's going on. Does it matter what's going on in there? I think it does. I think the, the UK government's position has been to support unconditionally what has been happening for the last 135 days. I think there should be a ceasefire regardless of the political outcome. Okay. Uh, and what's your opinion of the Labour Party's role in all this at the moment? I think the Labour, the Labour Party is supporting and is also allowing genocide to continue. And there's well, a... it's not. I mean, they would say they've just, they've now moved decisively to saying they're calling for an immediate ceasefire. They are. Too late. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. Too late. I mean, there needs to be a ceasefire. Excellent. Excellent if they're calling for an immediate ceasefire. You the idea that they got there eventually and, it, and therefore... Yeah, shame on Keir Starmer. All the, all the people sitting in here. Shame all on all, the, all of them. Well, yes, they're not, they're not many who have come up and said, yes, we want ceasefire. Well, there are 56 Labour MPs who voted in favour of a ceasefire in November. How many? 650. So, what percentage is that? Uh, what's that? Uh, fives into 65. Less than 10%. Less than 10%. So, is it, is it a matter of to be proud of, or is it a matter of being ashamed of? We then headed back inside to find Rachel Maskell, the Labour MP for York Central. She was one of 56 Labour MPs who rebelled against her party in November, and I wanted to get a sense of what she was going to do today. Do you know how you're going to vote? as regards those three votes? I'm very clear that I'll be voting at every opportunity for a ceasefire. So that would be with the Labour amendment and the SNP motion, because both are calling for a ceasefire. But ultimately, I don't know how this is going to play out. I think here in Westminster, there is confusion. Out across the country, there will be consternation. It seems that the Westminster bubble... And the nuances of different procedures has overtaken the humanitarian cause. Yeah, this seems very small relative to, and, and sort of pointless and odd compared to those very sort of clear moral outlines of what's happening in Gaza, right? And it makes me feel like Westminster is out of touch with reality at the moment. If we're, we're playing over the nuances of 
dots and commas, as it will appear, when people are facing a humanitarian crisis. Right. Now, as and when you vote on the SNP uh, motion, and you're going to vote in favour of that, that's going to land you in trouble, right? That's rebelling. Well, yeah, it is going against the whip. And certainly I've been talking to my whip throughout the, the week um, and last week to, to express my view as to why sometimes I believe the moral cause is bigger than the political cause. And this is one such moment. When you're making those arguments or have been making those arguments, what arguments by way of pushing back on your position of the whips made? I mean, clearly the whips want us to follow the whip. That's what we're elected to do. But what's their response when you say, look, I ha- you know, this is a if ever there was a, a, a matter of conscience, it's this one. My my whip knows me and knows where I'm coming from, so nothing comes as a surprise because I'm not there to try and do anything to divide our party. I want our party to come together, and I'm really pleased that Kistama has moved considerably over the last few months on this matter. And now, co- it almost looks like he's taken the reverse position compared to compared to where he was three, four, five weeks ago. Do you think actually? What the last few days demonstrates is it took the Scottish National Party to push the Labour Party leader into doing what he ought to do. We know across the country the vast majority of people want a ceasefire. We know of party members the vast majority want a ceasefire. So this has been building for some time. I don't think it was a because of an SNP motion. It's the fact that the facts are changing. The reality is coming closer and closer to us. But also, I think Labour has grown in its courage to stand up for what is right. What would you say the feeling has been like among Labour MPs over the last couple of months? Because as you say, to some extent, People's fears about the leadership's position have been eased by what's happened over the last three or four days, right? I mean, arguably slightly longer in the, in the sense that it was a build-up to it. But prior to that, how were people feeling, would you say? I would say the emotions have been all over the place within the party because clearly a lot of MPs themselves have faced a lot of pressure in their constituency. No, it hasn't. But across the country, of course, my uh, colleagues are facing real pressures from constituents predominantly, but also they want to see Labour in a very strong position in calling for a ceasefire. That's what I've got from talking to colleagues across the PLP. What will happen to you because of the fact that you rebel? (laughs) What are you expecting? Now, because it's very interesting that you've spoken to us at all, and I'm very grateful that you have, but we approached a number of Labour MPs yesterday And some of them, at least one of them, said very, very starkly, I can't talk to you because if I slip up, that might be the end of my political career. Now, that's not a verbatim quote, but that was essentially what they were saying. This isn't about my career. This is about getting clear messages out that we need to push forward to. But it's better that you have a political career than not, particularly if if you feel so passionately about this issue, right? You you, you wouldn't want to land yourself in such trouble that you cease to be a Labour MP. And some people yesterday were talking in those terms to us. With regards to my own position, I've been very open about talking about my position for a long, long time. I have spoken about the humanitarian being ahead of the political, and I believe that we're a bigger and better country if we can focus on that and come together around that cause. And if people say, who cares what the House of Commons thinks, it's not like anybody in that region is going to alter what they're doing and what's happening because of a couple of votes in the House of Commons and therefore this is a psychodrama. What's the answer to that? 
it's all part of a snowball rolling, isn't it? And if the UK gets into a position, um, first of all, we need the government of the UK to move because of building pressure on them. This will be another notch to push the government forward. We can't say the UK is insignificant with regards to what happens across Israel and Palestine. We've got to recognise that we do have a significant voice and we've got to use that. What have you seen in the last... Well, it goes back to October the 7th, doesn't it? It's just months, right? What have you seen of the way that Keir Starmer operates and, and what do you think what's happened very recently says about his style of leadership and where he's taken the party? I think Keir Starmer reflects very deeply on issues. He wants to get things in the right place. And I think he very much doesn't rush to an answer. I think he takes his time to to stew on issues and to, well, he to work things. Well, he arguably rushed to the wrong answer from your perspective early on. In the sense that, as you know, he was asked, should Israel have the right to switch the water and the electricity off? And he yeah. said, yes, they should, yeah. which people were alarmed by. Yeah. So it's not like he's been sort of calmly taking soundings and then gradually arriving at a position. From your perspective, originally, his position was wrong. Yes. That's yeah. right, isn't it? The LBC interview, I think yeah. we all refer back to, and that position clearly, um, I was shocked when I heard that. I think that's fair to say. But in, in, in politics, often people think, you know, the leader is there kind of um, listening out. But clearly, there are a lot of people around the leader and it's up to us as MPs to push in. But it has taken its time. And I would say we should have been there a lot sooner. Let's not make a show in front of your wife and kids. What happens when the witness who places you at the scene of a crime isn't human? Because you are under arrest for your warrant, for your outstanding Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. It has been a very chaotic evening in the House of Commons, to say the least. So we've got the Guardian's political correspondent, Kieran Stacey, back with us to explain what exactly has gone on and what happens next, perhaps. So, Kieran, you were there watching this happen. What happened before the vote? That's the first question. So uh, from the point that the debate started, I guess. Yeah, well, it's been a fairly dramatic day from the beginning. Obviously, last time we talked, we heard that Lindsay Hoyle was going to choose uh, both amendments, and that really set the tenor for the rest of the day. So we then had a very fractious several hours' worth of debate pockmarked by points of order and complaints about the speaker and then MPs shouting at each other. 
all the while, you know, there are hundreds of protesters uh, outside and I'm sitting here in my office just above the chamber of the House of Commons and I can hear them shouting and uh, I can hear the MPs shouting on my live feed of what's going on in Parliament. So it's, it's all very tense, all very fractious. And then Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House of Commons, a, a government minister, then surprised us all really by coming out and saying, you know what, we're not even going to participate in these votes at all. This decision has raised temperatures in this House on an issue where feelings are already running high, and this has put honourable and right honourable members in a more difficult position. It also appears, from the advice of his clerk, that the decision is taken against the long-standing and established processes and procedures of this House, and that the consequences may be that government is not able to respond to opposition day motions, and as such, the government does not have confidence that it will be able to vote on its own motion. And from that moment, the um, uh, you know the, the pressure of the situation, the peril of it for Keir Starmer was completely taken away. That meant that Labour was definitely going to win on their amendment and that the motion would then become Labour's motion yeah. and there would be no rebellion against Starmer. But what it then became was, instead of being a story all about Labour's position on Gaza, it became this obscure parliamentary, quite unseemly parliamentary row about what exactly the Speaker has chosen to do today. And it got very, very strange and arcane, didn't it, at the point that a vote happened about whether Commons was going to sit in private. Yeah, here I was in my office fr frantically writing up my pieces for uh, Thursday's Guardian. Uh, and I looked up and I saw on the screen from the chamber down below this note saying MPs are now voting as to whether to sit in private. Now, I didn't have a clue what the, what was going on at that point, uh, but I figured out that it was simply a delaying tactic because what MPs were trying to do, particularly on the Conservative and SNP benches, was use that time to haul Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, back in front of them to kind of explain himself once more. And in the end, that was successful. I mean, they didn't have a sitting in private, thankfully. We actually got to see everything that went on tonight, but it did give them enough time to get Hoyle back into the chamber. And that's when we had this very dramatic moment one I've not seen before of the Speaker, apologising to the House of Commons. OK, let's hear a bit of that. I do not want it to have ended like this. I want to say to the House, I will meet with all the key players of each party. I think it is right that I meet with each one. And that... Can I just put that correct? I've never met with Sue Gray today. I didn't bump into her today. I'm offended by that comment. I think you'd like to withdraw it. Yeah, because that is the danger that we've ended up with a social speculation of not what is fact and not factual. I am honest to this house. I am true to this house. I believe in all members of this house. And I tried to do. I have tried to do what I thought was the right thing for all sides of this house. It is regrettable, and I apologise. Right, obvious question, Kieran. How did that apology go down? <laughs> uh, not well. Um, I mean, the speaker, as he was trying to make the apology, was being constantly interrupted by points of order from uh, various different parties, um, some of which he actually took. Um, in the end, on the Conservative benches, Penny Mordaunt said that they did accept 
uh, the apology. But Stephen Flynn, the SNP leader, was full of righteous indignation as he said that the uh, uh, the speaker's position was now, in his words, intolerable. Um, and you know, he he said, and he had a point here that the SNP's day for debate had essentially become a day all about Labour. But as I said to you earlier, that's what happens when you try and play parliamentary games. Sometimes you get beaten at your own game. Precisely. I mean, on the face of it, one can understand why the SNP felt aggrieved, but they were very knowing in their choice of wording in that motion. They were setting a trap for the Labour Party so they could go back to their constituencies in Scotland and say, you know, Keir Starmer is against basic matters of human decency as laid out in our motion. They knew exactly what they were doing and they were hoist on their own petard, arguably. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the SNP's game in Westminster, and it, they play it very well, is to try and put Labour and the Tories together in on one side of an argument and themselves on the other. And they've done this very successfully on Gaza so far. Uh, they, they called earlier than either of the two other parties for a ceasefire, and for a while that was quite an effective dividing line. But once Keir Starmer had kind of said openly that he backed an immediate ceasefire, it then just became about parliamentary chicanery and the attempt by the SNP to ferment to rebellion on the Labour benches. And it nearly worked. Now, we, we need to say at this stage, two or three minutes into this conversation about arcane parliamentary procedure and the huge farce that we've just seen erupt in the chamber, that distanced the spectacle of what was going on from the horror of what it was ostensibly about. And that we really have to come back to that point, don't we? That if, if ever there was a point at which there was a gap between the, the the horror, the awfulness, the stark moral aspects of what's happening in Gaza and uh, the way that the House of Commons ended up responding to it, it happened tonight, didn't it? It was th- That gap was huge. Lindsay Hoyle himself said, uh, this day has not shown the House at its best. I mean, what an understatement. This ended up being a debate, a packed House of Commons, by the way. You don't always get that. You know, absolutely full to the brim chamber of the House of Commons was in there, you know, while Israel is threatening to uh, attack Rafa, the city in the south of Gaza. The, the chamber of the House of Commons was in there debating very obscure processes and, you know, whether the Speaker of the House of Commons had done the right thing by selecting one amendment over the other. I mean, it was really, really unseemly. And and as I said to you before, you know, I could hear the protesters over the, over the road in Parliament Square protesting about what's actually happening on the ground. And then to hear this very strange but very furious debate going on in the chamber was, was quite dissonant. I thought that straight away because we spent some time um, this afternoon, talking to people who were queuing all the way down the one of the outer walls of the House of Commons about what they were doing and why. And obviously they felt very passionate and angry about what was happening in Gaza. They were very passionate and angry as well about what they already perceived as the House of Commons sort of flight into this absolutely ludicrous debate about procedure. But the, the contrast, I suppose, between their politics at its most sort of visceral and vivid and what was going on was astonishing. Now, One of the things that Lindsay Hoyle was quite upfront about was that he had made this decision to rule in Labour and government amendments because MPs were concerned about their safety and he thought he ought to give every side of the argument a chance to speak. So then, you know, their position on the ceasefire would be made clear and perhaps some of these concerns about MPs' safety would therefore ease. A lot of people have said tonight that where events in the House of Commons leave everything is that MPs are certainly no more safe and they might be even less safe after this. 
You know, I don't know. We'll have to see in the next few days. I think that the big thing that has been averted that people on the Labour benches really wanted was any sense that people who support an immediate ceasefire would not get a chance to vote on one. They wanted to be able to go back to their constituents and when when the question is put, be able to say, I voted for an immediate ceasefire. They did do that tonight. And in fact, they then managed to make it the will of the House because it passed unopposed. So I think to that extent, they finally have an answer to those people who've been challenging for them for several months saying, you oppose a ceasefire, you oppose a ceasefire. And now, now they can point to something and say, no, we don't. But God, we've got an antiquated parliament, haven't we? <laughs> so I was sitting there, I was sitting there in the old chamber of the House of Commons, which is absolutely packed. I mean, it's Deliberately, by the way, it's too small for the number of MPs it has, which the, which is a decision they've taken to uh, kind of uh, make it a louder, more rambunctious place. So you're sitting there and there's loads of MPs kind of standing opposite me and we're surrounded by all this ornate, you know, gilt work and the, these plush green leather benches while this arcane debate is happening. And you just think, how divorced are we right now from the reality of what we're talking about? I mean, we are a million miles away from it. That's exactly what I thought. Right, I, I, I hate to say this, but um, presumably there may well be more of this, so we will speak soon. Well, I, I look forward to it, and I also don't look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, my sentiments entirely. Thanks, Kieran. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, if that's the right word. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.